The Jonathan Cruz case was hastily investigated by authorities, but many questions remain. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Wysocki as she uncovers the truth about what happened to Jonathan. This is Without Warning. Warning. The following episode contains elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On February 2nd, 2014, a 911 call came into the Coppell Police Department dispatch. The caller, Brenda Lazaro. Brenda claimed her boyfriend, Jonathan Cruz, shot himself in the chest. She told the dispatch they had a discussion earlier in the day, eaten dinner, watched TV, and then they talked in the bedroom, him lying in the bed and she is sitting on the floor. Quote, we were just having a discussion and we were just talking, end of quote. Brenda said to the 911 operator, Quote, he just said that he loved me and I didn't need to leave him. And he said that he was going to prove that he loved me. End of quote. Brenda then claims Jonathan told her to cover her ears and he shot himself in the chest. However, the evidence tells another story. In the last episode, you heard text messages between Jonathan and his sister, Danny. Jonathan told Danny that there were four choices. He had laid them out thoughtfully and logically. No one saw the fifth choice. More on that later. In this episode, I will give you a glance into the case and the people in Jonathan's life. Getting to know the victim is very important. It was no different in Jonathan's case. I needed to find out if Jonathan had friends, a relationship with his family, what were his hobbies, who did he confide in? Jonathan Cruz was the oldest son of John and Pamela Cruz. Jonathan was 27 years old at the time of his death. He had become established in a successful career with significant responsibility and enjoyed close relationships with friends and family. What I found was Jonathan was a generous young man who adored his family and protected his younger siblings, Christian and Danny. Jonathan was close to both of his parents. He wanted to marry a woman like his mother who put her family first. Jonathan looked up to his father and admired him. Wind Beneath My Wings was the song that Jonathan said reminded him of his dad, John. Christian, Jonathan's younger brother, looked to Jonathan as a mentor. One thing was obvious. Jonathan loved his family. More on his family in a later episode. Jonathan had many, many friends, all telling stories of his sense of humor and generosity. The ex-girlfriends I interviewed spoke about a young man who focused on them when they were dating. Not every relationship was perfect. I spoke to those exes as well. Many of the girls continued their friendship after the breakups. Some of the exes would turn to Jonathan for advice or help months, even years after they broke up. 
Jonathan was there for them with a helping hand. Jonathan was not short of female attention. Jonathan was handsome, he dressed well, he treated women very well, evidently showering them with gifts. The gifts were not solely for girlfriends. Jonathan also showered his mom and sister with expensive purses. Jonathan appeared to want to share his good fortune with his friends, buying them some dinners when they went out or a round of drinks for the group. What was obvious after speaking to his friends, Jonathan loved his friends. He loved being around them. Throughout my conversations with his friends, I noticed they were from various walks of life, not all from the same background as Jonathan's. Pam told me she had an open door policy. Children were not excluded. From that modeling as a child, it appears Jonathan was inclusive as well. It showed in his group of friends. Words his friends used to describe Jonathan were loving, caring, loyal, rational and logical over and over and over. One theme that kept coming up was Jonathan's sense of humor, from streaking to putting his dear friend Caitlin's underwear on a fan. Endless, endless stories about how fun and what a prankster Jonathan was. It was clear Jonathan loved to laugh. The next area I investigated was work. Was Jonathan happy at work? Was he stressed? Was he over his head as a young employee at Cassentra Urgent Care? I set appointments to talk to the employees at Cassentra. The theme about Jonathan Cruz continued at work. He cared. He embraced his employees. He had a sense of humor and pride with his work. He took a new employee from Hispanic descent under his wings, friending him. His name, Osvaldo. Here is a brief clip from my talk with Osvaldo. He could barely get the words out because his friend, Jonathan, had died. I found a real good friendship. Like, I was like planning the future, like hang around more with him and do stuff. Cause I mean, it's really like, it's like, I don't know. That's, that's how I see it. There's really not like good friend, good, good, like good friends like him. Like, he sounded like he was a good friend of people. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Jonathan was doing so well in his position that he received a bonus. He was on the fast track motivating employees to strive for their best so this location would climb up on the ranks. And it did. One of the stories was every week Jonathan would bring in donuts for the employees. After his death, Pam and John Cruz took over Donuts to thank the employees for their overwhelming outreach after Jonathan's death. I will talk more about his work in another episode. You will hear from the other employees. Jonathan was a valued and impressive employee at Cassentra Urgent Care. Doing the victimology on Jonathan left only one area, hobbies. 
Jonathan was studying martial arts and was a firearm enthusiast. Besides his family, friends, and his job, Jonathan enjoyed studying martial arts at Wu Ying Kung Fu, where his mother and sister studied as well. Oh, and Brenda taught lessons there. More on that later. The weekend he died, he met with his mother and sister to go over a new move that he missed. The problem, he hurt his shoulder and couldn't practice. More on that later, too. Like everything else Jonathan did, he was all in on learning and practicing his skill. The same went for firearms. At an early age, Jonathan was introduced to responsible gun ownership. Jonathan's grandfather introduced him to a gun expert who proceeded to teach Jonathan the rules of responsible gun ownership. Jonathan excelled in being responsible at an early age with firearms, so much so he was entered into competitions. Responsible gun owners know how to handle guns properly. You don't play around with them. There is a respect between gun owner and gun. Jonathan introduced his sister Danny to responsible gun ownership and his new friend Osvaldo. He passed on the rules of being a responsible gun owner to them. At this point, I have investigated every area of Jonathan Cruz's life. Outside of Brenda, Jonathan did not have any problems or conflicts. When Jonathan died, the outreach was extensive. Jonathan had touched so many in his short life. After his death, Pam wrote Jonathan a letter. I asked Pam to read it for the podcast. She did me that favor with reservations. She had to ignore the emotions bubbling up in order to get through the letter. Her true emotions could not come through or the letter would never have been read. She worried that her voice didn't have the inflection and the listeners would judge her. She doesn't know my audience or how supportive you all are to victims' family. Pam hasn't experienced the without warning audience support system. The without warning audience knows how hard it is for moms to relive and think about their loved ones. So listen to Pam read the letter, knowing her reservations, that she is in a car at night with her phone light on the letter in order to do this for me, so you could hear directly from Jonathan's mom. To my son, Jonathan. Johnny, for a very long time now, I've intended to write a letter to leave behind for each of my beautiful children, so that in case anything ever was left unsaid after I was gone, you would each know how very much I love you and why you each are so special to me in your own way. I hate so much that you're hearing yours like this. From as far back as I have memories, I knew that what I wanted more than anything was to be a mama. I waited my whole life for you to come along. And when you finally arrived, I was beyond ecstatic. But then when they first put you in my arms, I was suddenly overwhelmed and terrified. There were a lot of people in my life that I loved very much. And I really thought I knew what love was. But in that very first moment with you, I was overwhelmed with a depth of love that I never even knew was possible. And it was a depth of love I wasn't sure I wanted. I can still remember my exact thoughts. 
Oh no, what did I do? I love him too much. I don't want to love anything this much because if anything ever happens to him for the rest of my life, I'll never be able to go on living. I wanted to protect you from every kind of hurt, pain, and sadness. At that very same moment, they were playing a song on the intercom called The Greatest Love of All. I remember hearing the lyric, The greatest love of all is happening to me. And I looked into your tiny face and thought to myself, yes, it really, really is. I know it won't surprise you at all to know that by the time the doctor came to check on us, I was in full tears at the thought that when you went to kindergarten someday, maybe some other child would tease you and make you sad, maybe even make you cry. And I couldn't stand the thought of you being sad, ever. I prudently opted not to tell the doctor why I was crying, lest he deem me insane and remove you instantly from my custody. There are so many memories I've always cherished from our very first two or three days together. Mainly, I suppose, because I was trying so hard to savor every moment of being your mommy. I didn't want to forget anything. I tried to commit every inch of you to memory. Your forearm was exactly the length of my index finger and one and a half times its width. I loved being able to dial the hospital nursery and say, can you please bring me my baby? And knowing that there was a my baby to bring. And I will never forget the way daddy gasped when the doctor said, you have a son. I couldn't get enough of being with you and never wanted to put you down. A nurse came in to deliver my one lunch one day. She said, give me the baby. I said, I want to hold him. She said, you can't have the baby in the bed when you have food. You might spill on him. I assured her that no, I would not be spilling food on my newborn baby. I mean, good grief, who spills food on their brand new infant? It's a rule, she said. I told her in that case, she could take the food away. She left both you and the food with me. And guess what? I didn't spill on you at all. Very soon after your birth, I noticed that your head would sometimes shake uncontrollably. It began to happen with greater and greater frequency. Naturally, being that I am me, I decided that you almost certainly were suffering from epilepsy. I couldn't bear to hear you diagnosed with anything. So I just kept it to myself, growing more and more terrified every time it happened. Finally, just before we were released to go home, I decided that for your sake, I was going to have to confess my fears so that you could receive treatment. I got at my nerve and told the nurse that I was very concerned because your head kept shaking. And then I held my breath, bracing myself for the awful confirmation. She asked a few questions checked you out, and then informed me that you, what you were doing was a natural newborn behavior called rooting, and that it simply meant that you were hungry. Oops. They sent us home with a variety of baby paraphernalia, some of which was very much a mystery to us. God forbid we should have simply asked them what it all was. Among the items was a blue rubber bulb syringe. It seemed perfectly obvious to me that we were supposed to use it to suction out every drop of mucus between your nose and your brain 
each night before bed to keep you from suffocating during the night. Daddy questioned whether I was certain that this was absolutely necessary, as it upset you every time and left us dealing with a very wide awake and screaming baby. But he went along with it, if only slightly reluctantly, once I informed him that it was almost certainly a matter of life and death. And just for good measure, we turned the baby monitor on loud enough to hear your every breath. The only thing we never really came to a meeting of the minds on was the necessity of my beating on the wall between your bedroom and ours to startle you back into breathing loud enough for us to hear you over the monitor. Apparently, you were not amused with our marginal early parenting skills and paid us back in full by demanding to eat every two hours, day and night, for what seems like the first several months of your life, and shooting the remains out the other end with even greater frequency, and typically all over us. As you grew, it became quickly evident that you were very intelligent and very curious, which in a toddler translates to very, very busy. You were then, and remained throughout your entire life, a person who did everything with great exuberance. We had to baby-proof our house to a degree that left it just short of a padded cell. We couldn't have indoor plants because you ate them. We couldn't have curtains because, well, those just make for the most excellent climbing and swinging opportunities ever. We couldn't have knickknacks of any sort. And any furniture that could possibly be climbed was bolted to the wall. The electrical outlets, cabinets, refrigerator, and toilets were all secured. And leaving toilet paper on a roll anywhere within your reach was just a confetti party waiting to happen. And even then, we had to watch you constantly. Even with all of these precautions in place, we got up one morning when you were about two years old to find that you had gotten up early, foiled the refrigerator lock, managed to open a child-proof bottle of amoxicillin, and then drank the entire thing. There you stood with the empty bottle in hand and a very pink mustache. You very proudly announced, I drink the pink. Daddy said the pharmacist looked at him like he was a criminal when he went to buy the Ipecac syrup. When I shopped for preschools for you, I was unable to use any criteria that might matter to most parents, such as curriculum or child-rearing philosophies. No, I had to do perimeter searches of the premises to seek out potential escape routes and try to determine which school was the most escape-proof. When you were small, you enjoyed playing every kind of team sport. Not necessarily so much because you passionately loved each of the individual sports, but because you liked the uniforms. When you were in kindergarten and played both soccer and t-ball, Daddy asked you whether you liked t-ball better or soccer. You immediately proclaimed, T-ball, of course. When he asked you why, you said, Better snacks. At age seven, you discovered martial arts. And while you did enjoy wearing the uniforms and earning the different belts, it was the sport itself that eventually won your heart. In usual Jonathan fashion, you gave it your all right from the very first. I remember watching you try to do your front kicks so high and so hard at first that you would knock yourself right on your back. What a pleasure it has been to watch you grow and improve over these many years into a skilled martial artist and a formidable opponent. 
This February, in fact, marks your 20th year as a martial artist. As I conceded last time we sparred, you could have owned me in a heartbeat. Even though it was obvious to us both, I'm pretty sure you got a good bit of pleasure out of hearing me admit it out loud. You're welcome. I will always treasure the memory of our last sparring match, just last Friday evening, most especially because when it was over, you opened your arms really wide and gave me that big, sweet hug that I will never forget. I've always been proud of you for so many, many things. Your work ethic has amazed me since you were a child. Not that your room or the messes you left in my kitchen were ever of much apparent concern to you. But when you had a job of any kind, you always gave it your all, even as a young boy. You graduated from college at a time when jobs befitting your level of education were almost impossible to come by. You never complained about working in restaurants or selling shoes. You just did your jobs, no matter what they were, and gave your all. In fact, from what I've been hearing these last several years, you didn't just do your jobs, but went far and above what was asked or required of you and you were always respectful and appreciative of the employees in your charge. It's no wonder to me at all that you finally ended up with your wonderful job at Concentra, which both challenged you and brought you such joy. You were such an honest person, a loyal friend, a wonderful son, and an amazingly loving big brother to both Christian and Danny. I am so thankful for the relationship that we had. I'm thankful that we always just said what we felt, good or bad, and worked from there. I'm thankful that there is nothing left unsaid and no regrets between us. I have no doubt that you know how much I love you and how incredibly proud I always have been of you. And I know that you loved me too. I am thankful that we told that to each other almost every day. I'm thankful that I had the privilege of being your mother every single day of your life and that I was blessed with the most incredible opportunity to be a stay-at-home mom. I thank Daddy for that. He worked so hard to make that possible for us. Although I once feared that I couldn't go on having any sort of life if you weren't with me, I'm really going to try to keep trying to live a life that would make you proud. I don't think you would want your legacy to be leaving those of us that loved you the best hurting forever. Dad, Christian, Danny, and I will take care of each other until we see you again. We'll miss you terribly, but we'll also be happy for you knowing that you're surrounded by the one true greatest love of all. I have only one favor to ask, and if you can't do that, I'll understand. But if there's any way you can visit me in a dream or somehow just let me know you're nearby sometime, It would be incredibly awesome. I know that you're with God, but you know me. I always appreciate that call, just letting me know you arrived safely. I love you, Mama. P.S. We're loving Ulysses for you. Please watch over Dylan and the others for us until we're all together again. Jonathan began dating Brenda Lazaro around November 2013. Although he was attracted to Brenda, 
and interested in a possible long-term relationship, he was also concerned about her emotional stability, at one point commenting to the effect that Brenda was crazy and that before he could come to a conclusion about long-term prospects, he needed to understand the extent of her craziness. He expressed to family members throughout his entirety of the relationship that her instability and irrational jealousy might necessitate his ending the relationship. While on a family vacation at Christmas time, he told his sister he did not think Brenda was necessarily stable enough to be the mother of his children. Jonathan told Danny, in effect, that he wanted for his children to have the kind of mother who would put her children before herself and that he felt that Brenda was not selfless enough to do so. By January 2014, Jonathan was having substantial doubts about Brenda, particularly concerning her irrational level of jealousy. Brenda was particularly vocal about Jonathan's relationship with one of his best friends, Emily. Jonathan met Emily while both were working at Dillard's. The two went on one date and mutually concluded that they were not a match. In fact, Jonathan introduced Emily to another of his friends, Jacob, and who had been his college roommate. Emily and Jacob were dating at the time Brenda and Jonathan met and are now married. Why the obsession with Emily? In or around early December 2013, Jonathan arranged for he and Brenda to meet two of his best friends, Emily and Jacob, for dinner. When the two couples met up at the restaurant, Jonathan hugged Emily and Jacob as was his custom. Although Jonathan and Brenda had only been dating for a short time, and despite the fact that Jonathan and Emily had never been romantically involved, Brenda was extremely agitated about Jonathan hugging Emily, and Emily quickly became an obsession for Brenda. You will hear several conversations between me, Emily, and Jacob. One day, I stopped by while Emily and Jacob were in the middle of a move. My name is Jacob Ramsey, and I know Jonathan from junior high. And where'd y'all go to junior high? Uh, Carrollton Christian Academy. When I actually first met Jonathan, I introduced him to a girl that he dated. That was one of my really good friends. I knew several girls that John dated. Like, not that were his girlfriends. You know, I met a couple of his girlfriends during our time of being friends, but I was friends with a girl whose name was actually Jackie. And not that Jackie, okay. a different Jackie. I'm Jackie, like, number two or three. But <laughs> this Jackie dated Jonathan for a while. So we, um, she was my assistant while oh. I worked at Dillard's. I don't know if you ever knew that. No. Okay, yeah. so she was your friend. You introduced her to Jonathan. Mm-hmm. When he first started, yep. Okay, but she was one. Wasn't there others? So there was a girl named Jackie that I know that he dated and hung around with, a girl named Brandy, another girl named Shannon. <laughs> Do you want me to go through? So de- okay, so Jonathan had a lot of girlfriends. Yeah, I mean, I would say so. He was a really social, like, outgoing person. So he liked to take girls on dates and kind of shower them with gifts and all of those types of things. Like, I know my friend Jackie, when she was dating him, 
pretty early on, he bought her these beautiful shoes and stuff from work. And it was always just kind of a joke of, he gives really good presents. That's sweet. Yeah, yeah we've heard that a lot today. Well, who was his last steady girlfriend before Brenda? Before Brenda? Huma? Oh, I guess it was, yeah, it was Huma. Okay, I knew Huma. Now, what did you, did you and Huma get along, Emily? Yeah. Yeah, we all we all got along. Huma hung out with us quite yeah. a few times, actually. Okay. Um, the first time I met Huma, I was very excited. When she came in, I was screaming her name. <laughs> so, yeah, no, we liked Huma. You know, when I worked at Dillard's with John, um, I think that's where he really started to kind of get into kind of the fashion world. I think he's always really loved that. But as far as buying kind of the cool yeah, accessory pieces. Before that, it was jeans, boots, and a t-shirt. Yeah. It's when he's gotten to working in retail is yeah. where he got really into that. And Jacob used to, all of those guys used to make fun of him for it. And now. Yeah, he'd show up to a bowling alley with $300 leather shoes. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Well, that's where he got into watches and all of those kind of things. Because I worked in accessories. And so at that time, he I was the manager over that department. He was working as an associate in shoes. And so it was kind of his thing of, oh, my gosh, you're going to an event. Let me help you with your shoes. And this girl can help you with all of your jewelry and accessories. Buy more shoes. And so he actually had, like, top sales because, I mean, he was a good salesperson in that sense of selling everything to them. So... But that he himself right. got into watches. We had a party one night and he <laughs> went streaking. <laughs> he didn't have any inhibitions. So if you get him around a group of friends, he just wants to have fun. and He's just he's just a joker, a party guy. Yeah, um, he really liked being around like groups of people. He really, he was a prankster, that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was pretty funny that night. We all dared him to do it. And he's like, yeah, whatever. And then we locked him outside. <laughs> I don't know if this is like a crazy story, but Jonathan, when I would hang out with him, would get really annoyed if anybody was on their phone a lot. And so I remember one time we went over to his parents' house and I was hanging out with him and we were in the top tub just talking about, you know, uh, just kind of like life and work and the current woman that he was dating. And I had my phone out and I was playing on it and he said something like, hey, hey, like, what are you doing? And he started to get like annoyed that I wasn't paying attention. So he took a cold drink and dropped it down my back. And so I dropped my phone and I ruined my phone in their hot tub and had to get a new one. He was, yeah. He just, he... <laughs> I was very mad about that. And I remember I was even more mad because he thought it was the funniest thing on the entire planet. I was like hysterically laughing. Uh, he thought it was funny. Remember that one time when he did the, I let him, I had him come over to my apartment when I was living with Caitlin. And uh, we were at the pool, and we came back in, and Caitlin hadn't come home yet. So for, for whatever reason, we decided to go into her room, and then she had a bunch of laundry that was, we hung her laundry from the fan. Yeah, it was room. hilarious, though. But that's... She was, she was mad. She, she got really mad and said, I don't want to... Jonathan was banned from the apartment <laughs> at that point. But then, like, I remember we came back another time, and it was like, is Caitlin home? We're letting Jonathan in. <laughs> like, you know, we were all hanging out, and she came in. Uh, but she was fine with it, I think, at that point. Which, I mean, I, I get it. You know, that was her personal stuff. She's a girl. Yeah. 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 Like, wouldn't you, you know, on the fan? <laughs> He's funny. Well, that was, I mean, he, he and I would always pick on Caitlin. And, and back in junior high, it was me, him, and Zach would always, because she was we love Caitlin, but she's an easy target. Sometimes we could go in and we could get a good reaction out of her with whatever we did. 
I bet she was pretty um, verbal about her feelings on the things yeah. that y'all did. Yeah. She's very articulate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She can express herself. You just had to make sure that you weren't within arm's reach because she, she had a mean backhand. By February 1st, 2014, Brenda's jealousy and anger provoked by Jonathan's relationship with Emily had reached a boiling point, and it became clear to Jonathan that Brenda was going to force him to make a choice. That day, Jonathan sent a text to his sister, Danny, in which he concluded that ending his relationship with Brenda was the best option under the circumstances. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay, thanks for the coffee. I'm okay. Why? Did Brenda say something? Not really. She said you seem distracted. I'm almost positive Brenda's going to make me choose between her and Emily. She wouldn't do that. Actually, she would. And she wants to. Weird. I'll try to bring it up and talk some sense into her. She won't hear reason on this. It's been an issue for a while. I've been telling myself she will get to know her and it'll be okay, but in the last few days, it's clear that won't happen. Neither choice is acceptable. And if I give in on this, I might resent her for it, and the relationship will fall apart. If I don't and we don't break up immediately, she will eventually resent me. I'm so glad I'm not a guy. What are you going to do? Don't know. Choices are, A, fight it and try to make it better between them, which will probably never happen. B, choose Brenda. C, refuse to give up either and see if Brenda ends it. D, end it with Brenda now. The issue is that A, B, and C all hold a strong likelihood of ending the relationship. D, on the other hand, for sure ends it, but limits and contains the damage. Weird. On the morning of Sunday, February 2nd, 2014, Jonathan confirmed his analysis from the night before, advising Emily and Jacob that he had made a decision to end his relationship with Lazaro. Later that evening, Jonathan died of a single gunshot wound to the chest. Brenda, the only witness to the shooting, claimed that the wound was self-inflicted and that Jonathan shot himself to prove his love to her. This story, of course, is not consistent with Jonathan's decision earlier in the day to end the relationship with Brenda or the physical evidence. Further, the evidence, among other things, shows Jonathan could not use his dominant hand to fire the pistol, and the trajectory of the shot was consistent with someone about Brenda's size shooting the gun from a standing position on the side of the bed where Jonathan was laying. If Jonathan had used his non-dominant hand to make the shot, if at all possible, would have required Jonathan to contort himself into extremely unnatural position and use his thumb to pull the trigger. From early on in their investigation, the Coppell Police Department suspected that the wound suffered by Jonathan was not self-inflicted. Allegedly, one officer stated to two people off the record 
that they have a confidence level of over 90% that Brenda was the shooter. It is unclear why the Coppell Police Department have not taken this case to the district attorney. Or is it? In every case, there is someone in the community who holds information that may be significant in solving a case. Relationships change over time, and many cold cases are solved when a former witness, friend, or relative is located who is tired of hiding information and shares that information with investigators. If you have any information about this case, please contact our voicemail comment line at 888-599-0008. You can leave an anonymous tip, or you can leave your contact information. We will call you back and speak with you directly. You can also email information to Sheila at SheilaWysocki.com. When you come to Nashville, Sheila invites you to visit some of her favorite local businesses, like Blush of Nashville. Without warning, executive director, executive producer, and host Sheila Wysocki. And Jonathan was voiced by Matt Bajenska. Announcer, Tim Evans. 